We're going to jump right into our Bible study today, Colossians. Hopefully everybody is uh, there in Colossians chapter 1. We began last week in, uh, in this book. And uh, you'll notice that the title is called Merry Christmas. The, uh, here at Calvary, this begins the Christmas season, and uh, we try to go all out for Christmas. I don't know about you, but I love Christmas. And uh, so what that means for, for um, us at home, what that means is from Thanksgiving Day all the way to the end of the year. On Thanksgiving Day, we begin to play Christmas music pretty much 24 hours a day, all day, every day, until New Year's. About New Year's, we're all like, make it stop. But up until that time, it's a lot of fun. And uh, one of the traditions that we have is on the day after Thanksgiving, we as a family, we all go and we purchase a Christmas tree. And uh, you know the kids are involved in the whole thing. And this year it was a little bit, a little bit more. Sunday, who's uh, one of our four year four year olds, as we're getting the Christmas tree, he looks up at me with those little eyes and goes, "Daddy," is the cutest voice. "Daddy, can I have a Christmas tree in my room?" To which I said. Yes, you can. And so we had to go find a Christmas tree for him that he could have it in his room. And it's, you know, it's just a, a great family tradition that we have, and we really love to celebrate Christmas at our house. I even love the word Christmas. You know, Christmas, we, we say Christmas, but we never really think about what the word means. It's actually Christ Mass. Now, for those of you who come from a Catholic background, the word Mass is very important. And actually, the spelling has changed through the years. So now it's Christ Mass, M-A-S, but it used to be much longer. And um, what that means, of course, Christ means Christ, that means Jesus, but Mass means to celebrate, the celebration. And so there on your outline, literally, Christmas means celebration of Christ. So, so that's what we do at Christmas. We, we celebrate Christ. And so the, the question would be, why do we celebrate? I and mean, what's so unique about Jesus that, that we would celebrate him? Well, it was in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, for more than 1,500 years as the prophets would talk about this one who would be coming in the future. He would be very unique. And uh, one of the, the verses, if you've been here for any length of time, you're very familiar with, all the way back in Isaiah, 800 years before Jesus was even born, it talked about who he would be when he arrived. There in your outline it says, for unto us a child is born. Whoever he will be, he's going to be born as a child. Unto us a son is given. It will be a boy child. And the government will be, shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And I want you to underline the next two names. The Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So he would be the Mighty God and the Everlasting Father, in case you, you, you miss it. So the idea is that God would come to the earth as a man. And, and when he came to the earth as a man, one of the, the reasons for God becoming a man and coming to the earth is so that when we looked at Jesus, we would know that's what God is like. So he, he's always, he, he's the perfect representation of, of his father. And so he, he's God. But, um, and so we would know what, what God is like. But in addition to that, Jesus came on a mission. And that mission was to step into our place and pay for all the things that we had done so that we could be made right with, with God. So when the church began 2,000 years ago, people understood that when they were inviting Jesus into their life, they were being saved, they, they were embracing him. They were embracing literally the one who was God in the flesh who stepped in their place and paid the price for their sins. But in the early church, over time, certain other teachers began to creep in, and they began to say other things about Jesus. Now, they, they didn't say bad things about Jesus, but they dethroned him. So they would say, well, he, he was a prophet, but he wasn't really God. 
Or they would say, well, he didn't really die on the cross for your sins, or he didn't really, uh, he didn't actually die physically. He was just more of, a, an, of an image, but not, not really God, not really God in the flesh. So uh, Paul says, as he's writing this, Paul says, so here's what we want to do. We want to clarify who this Jesus is and, and what he did. And so we're going to, and why it's such a big deal. So as we get into this paragraph, this passage, there is no other passage in the Bible that so uh, lays out in such a concentrated way just who Jesus is and what he did. And so we're going to jump right in today as we, as we consider who Jesus is. In uh, verse 14, we left off last week in, in uh, Colossians 1, and it said, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This week, as Paul says, so let's explain who this is. Verse 15, it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now, in, in all of your Bibles, it, it'll probably say something like, he is the image of the invisible God. That word, image, can mean representation, but I like Kittle's Theological Dictionary, and it says it like this. I put it on your outline. Uh, the word image there, icon in the original language, means likeness or, and, and I love this word, manifestation. So Jesus is, is God manifested to us. And what point, what point Paul is making, and you want to write this down, is just simply that Jesus is God. That's the first thing. All Christians believe that Jesus is God. Everyone else believes that Jesus is not God. It's the dividing line between that which is Christian and that which is not Christian. It's the dividing line. But then he says also in verse 15, he says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now in our Western minds, when we think of firstborn, we tend to think of being born first. But that's not what firstborn means in, uh, in the Bible. So go ahead and write this down. Firstborn doesn't mean born first, but it means first priority. And so in, in the Bible, you'll have a number of people who were born first, but they weren't the firstborn. For instance, Jacob and Esau back in the Old Testament, Esau is actually born first, but he's, he's not the firstborn. Uh, the firstborn is the one who has priority. In, uh, in the book of Exodus, when God comes to Moses, tells Moses, he says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, there in your outline, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And uh, the idea, it's not that Jesus or that Israel was the first nation, but it's the, the priority. This is, this is the nation that God has as the priority. And so he calls Israel his firstborn. That's the idea. So Jesus is God and he is the first priority. And now because he's God, something else that we need to know, and that's in verse 16, but I put verse 16 on your outline. I want to highlight just a couple of things as we travel through. It says, for by him, and I put that Greek word there, for by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, and I've underlined that, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So as God, you want to write this down, he is the creator of everything. And he goes out of his way to say invisible, invisible, heaven, you know, everywhere. He's the one. And I also love that he says it was created for him, uh, by him, and, and, uh, and through him. And the, the idea is Paul doesn't want us to get away from the fact that he is the creator. There's no other way of looking at Jesus. He, he is the creator. So when Jesus says, I and my Father are one, that's more than a nice thought. He, Jesus is the, the creator. Does everybody see that? Now, the reason that's important, Paul lays that out because there were some who were saying that maybe he wasn't the creator. As a matter of fact, 
If you come from a Mormon background, you would know that you were taught growing up that God had two sons specifically. One son would be named Jesus and the other son would be named Lucifer. And in Mormonism, they would say Jesus is not God and he's certainly not the creator. They'd say that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. Now, the Bible teaches that Lucifer was an angel that fallen, and ultimately we know him as Satan. And if this is true, then this would mean that Jesus is the one who created him. They are not brothers. And so Paul is talking about those types of things, that Jesus is God. He's the creator of everything. There is no equal. Does that make sense? Verse 17, he goes on to say, uh, he is before all things, and in, in him all things hold together. I love this. Jesus isn't just the creator, but he's the one holding it all together. So go ahead and write this down. When it says he's before all things, it means that as God, Jesus existed before the creation, and currently he keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. Cosmos from becoming chaos. He's the one who holds it together, and there's going to come a day when he's not going to hold it together, and it's all going to go away. When it says that he is before all things, there's this great little conversation that Jesus is having in uh, John's gospel in John chapter 8. And Jesus is speaking with the religious leadership. And uh, notice what he says. Jesus is speaking to them. He says, Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, which is his way of saying, you can take this to the bank. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And I want you to underline that, I am. And uh, that means two things. One, it means he's just invoked the name of God from the Old Testament where God says, I am who I am. Jesus says, I'm that, I am. But it also means that before Abraham was, he doesn't say I was, he says, I am. And as God currently, he is outside of, of time. And so they understood that, that that's who he was or that's what he claimed to be. So notice how they respond. They then, then they took up stones to cast at him. They got exactly what he was saying, and uh, so that was a big deal. So Jesus is the one who created it, and he's the one who holds it all together. Verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. I want you to underline first place in everything. When it says that he is the head, um, he's the beginning. The, um, the best way that I know how to describe this is that if you've ever been to the head of a river, for instance, my family loves to go camping at Wakiva Springs. How many of you have been to Wakiva Springs? The rest of you should go there. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful place and there's this spring and it just springs up and that turns into the Wakiva River. And so it's the head of the river. So the idea is Jesus as the head, it just is the beginning of everything is, is the idea. And so he's the head and then in verse 18 it says uh, he is the beginning and then it says the firstborn from the dead. And the idea there is that there were others who had been raised from the dead before Jesus but he's the first one who was raised and never died again. So he was, he's now eternally alive. Well, the response then, if he's God and he's the creator of everything, he's the head of the church, the response is that he is to have first place in everything. So go ahead and write this down. As God, Jesus 
is, my, is to be my highest priority? So that's a great question for us. Is, is Jesus, Jesus your highest priority? And, and here, here's how this works. One of the things that we find is that th- there are many people who, who will say, I believe that Jesus is God, but our true God is the one who is calling the shots in our life. So if Jesus comes and says, I want you to put me first in this area, and we respond by saying, no, what we've done is we've placed ourselves in the position, the throne of our life, and we've made ourselves God. Does that make sense? Because it's always, our real God is always the one who's calling the shots in our life. So if Jesus comes and he says, I want you to step out and serve me in this way. I want you to trust me in this way. And we look on him and we say, I'm not doing that. Then what we have done is we've placed ourselves in that position and we've made ourselves God. And, and in that case, we become the first priority and Jesus is not the first priority. And so that's something for us all to evaluate, to make sure that he's the highest priority because that's the idea. Well, verse 19 and 20 He says, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Now, if you have the NIV, I think it says the fullness of him to dwell in him, something like that. The idea is that God fully dwelt in Jesus. He's fully God. He's fully man. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made made peace through the blood of his cross. And I want you to underline the two words, blood and cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. Things in earth, things in heaven. When you read this, and one of the themes that's going to be all through this little book is that everything has to do with what Jesus has done. And you and I, we don't bring anything to the table. He's done everything. So uh, if we read verse 20 again, he says through him to, recognize, uh, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So it's important, uh, and you want to go ahead and write this down, being reconciled to him is all about what he did and not what we do. And that's going to be a theme that goes through this whole book. I had you underline that word blood. The, the word blood is an interesting word there. And Thayer's, uh, actually, um, yeah, Thayer's Bible Dictionary brings out a nuance on that word. And uh, that word, I put it there in your outline, blood. I won't try to pronounce it in the original language. It means bloodshed or to be shed by violence. And why don't you underline there, shed by violence. And it's interesting to me that that word blood is unique in in that it means to be shed by violence. And in case we miss that, one of the things that Paul does is he pairs the word cross with that. And the the word cross, we, we all know that that's a very, very violent death. So Paul wants to to really highlight that this is what he did. It was through his blood, which was shed by violence on the cross on our behalf. So so here's what this means. And uh, one of the, the verses we're all familiar with comes from Romans, and Paul says this. Again, a verse we're all familiar with. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wages of sin is death, free gift of God is eternal life. You've been around Calvary for any length of time. You've heard me say that you and I are created in the image of God. Being created in the image of God, there are some things 
that we can learn about God by looking at ourselves. One of those things, because we are created in his image, each and every one of us have a need for justice. In the creation, humans are the only creation that has a need for justice. And I typically say it like this. 20 dogs live up and down your street. Two dogs get into a fight over a pork chop. One dog rises up and kills the other dog. Do the other 18 dogs rise up and cry out for justice? No. All they want to know is what are you going to do with that pork chop? That's all they care about. They are not created in the image of God, so they don't care. They don't have a need for justice. They have a need for survival, but not for justice. That's unique to being human because we are created in the image of God. So let's say uh, you and I, we see on the news, and uh, we've certainly seen this week in, in Tennessee, for those of you who've been watching the news, but let's just say that, that uh, somebody uh, goes out, they get drunk, they take their car, they drive 85 miles an hour through a school zone, they hit a bunch of kids on a, on a school bus bench, and uh, all the children die, they get arrested, they go to trial, we're watching on television, we're following the trial, and uh, ultimately it comes out and, and uh, the jury says you're guilty. We have it on video. We saw there's testimony. Everybody knows you're guilty. There's no way around it. You are guilty. And so now it comes time for the sentencing. So how would we feel or how would we respond if when we turn to the judge and it's time to sentence, the judge stands up and says, you know what? You did it. You did it. Everybody knows you did it. And we saw it's on video. But I want you to know I love you and I forgive you. And because of that, you're free to go. Would any of us be okay with that? We wouldn't be okay with that, and here's why. Because we are created in the image of God. You see, we have a taste for the need for justice, but God is justice. We have a small taste. It emanates from him. So when we have a a need for justice, that's nothing compared to God's need. So God looks on us, and he realizes, and we realize, that we've done some things. We've lied to people, we've hurt people, we've not followed through on promises. Some of us said, I do, and ultimately we didn't. We've reneged on certain things that we said that we would do. Uh, We've walked away from relationships that we needed to to stay. You know, we've all done some things. And so God looks on and and just, and he says, you know, I, I do love you, and I want to say you're free to go. But just like you have a need for somebody to, to pay for those things, I as God, I have that need for somebody to pay for these things. But God, because of his great love for us, he said, I can't bear to see you pay for all the things that you've done. So God said, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come to the earth as a man, and I'm going to live a sinless life. And on that day, I'm going to die a very violent, horrific death. And when I do, that's going to be the payment for everything that you've ever done so that I will have that sense of it's paid for so that I'm able to say, if you receive my free gift of salvation, I'm able to say, I love you. It's all paid for. You are forgiven. You are free to go. And in that God paid for everything that we've ever done everything that we are doing now, and everything we will ever do in the future. He paid it completely. So that's the idea. Does that make sense? So it's also important that when Jesus came to the earth, when God came to the earth to step into our place, he didn't do that grudgingly. 
Notice there on your outline, this comes from Paul's letter to the Hebrew believers. He says, who for the joy, underline the word joy, that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, despising the shame. One of the things you've, if you've, uh, You've ever, if you grew up in the church uh, like I did, they would, they would say uh, very passionately that he, he was there naked on the cross and he endured the shame. And we think about that and we look at the pictures of Jesus on the cross and typically he has a loincloth on. What we forget is that when the Romans crucified, they tried to do it in the way that it was the most humiliating way that they could possibly do. And so it's m- far more likely that Jesus did not have the loincloth on. the shame was complete. And that was part of the idea of crucifixion. So despising the shame yet and and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So here's what this means. Here's what this means. Jesus knew everything he was going to go through and that would be the payment for the stuff that we've done. And so you want to write this down. As God, Jesus joyfully took our punishment. Doesn't mean that he enjoyed the punishment but knowing that he would have relationship with us and he'd be able to say, you're free to go, he gladly stepped in our place. Well, verse 21, it goes on and he says, verse 21, and though you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Holy and blameless beyond reproach. Uh, the idea is that because he paid, uh, when he looks at you, he does not see the sin. It's all been forgiven. It's all, all been taken care of. It's also important there that Paul is driving home. We just saw the blood of his cross. And here in verse 22, he says, his fleshly body through death. And uh, some were saying that Jesus was not really human, or he didn't really die on the cross, or he didn't really raise from the dead. And, and so they were denying. So Paul is, is driving that point home. If you've ever been part of what's called the Unity School of Christianity, they would teach that Jesus was not God and that he did not die on the cross for your sins and he was not raised in, in bodily form, that he just descended, he just kind of went on. They would hold that the way that you are saved is not by, how, uh, by Jesus dying on the cross, but it is through endless repetitions of being reincarnated to the place where you kind of work out your stuff. And then at the end of you working out your stuff, uh, then, then you're just, you don't have to be reincarnated any, any longer. If that's true, I've got a few lifetimes ahead of me. So it's funnier in the first service. Verse 23, he says, but, but once again, just notice here in verse 22, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. And it's all based upon what he has done, not what you do. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly, as firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, uh, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now, verse 23 is going to deal with belief, not behavior. And so Paul's concerned that they're going to be moved away from their hope. They're going to listen to some things that are not true and that's going to trip up their faith. So go ahead and write this down. Enduring in the faith is proof of the reality of our faith. And, and part of the point that Paul is making here, when, when you become a believer, um, Jesus steps inside. 
there's a change. That's why it's called conversion, born again, a different existence. This is uh, for those who, we've all met people who, and we'd say, I remember back in the eighth grade, this person went forward at some camp meeting. And, uh, but beyond that point, there was never any evidence of their being, being a believer. And uh, tragically, it'll be at a funeral where somebody will say, but I'm trusting in that, that something happened there. It's a good chance that nothing happened there because there was no following through. The idea is that you know that you are in the faith because you're following the Lord. There's something inside of you that wants to follow the Lord. Paul's not getting people to question uh, their salvation or lose their salvation. He's just saying the evidence is that, that you will continue in the faith. Uh, also, it's important that word if, because some people will hold that, that 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 could be the question. There on your outline, that word if can be translated a number of different ways. Uh, uh, the word if, and it's Ige, and I'm probably mispronouncing that, means if indeed, inasmuch as, and then underline the word since, since. And so you could be saying, since you are continuing the faith, and that's kind of the idea. So Paul's not suggesting that they could lose their salvation. His concern is that they would be moved away from their hope as they listen to some false teachers. Verse 24. Um, Verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I hesitated whether to talk about this, but uh, I think this is important for us to to at least take a moment and and share. If you were to go online today and you were to type in Colossians 1.24 and the word purgatory, uh, it will take you to a number of Catholic sites that will tell you that this verse is proof of purgatory. Paul says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. The teaching goes like this. Jesus did his part, and and now you're going to have to be purified. Now, as a believer, the way that you're purified, you fill up what is lacking. And so after you die, you go to this place called purgatory, and you stay in the fire and uh, until you are purified. And there's, there's a whole process and, and belief system around that. So... Um, I, I wanted to just take a moment and just share why, in case you know this, this ever comes up, why this verse cannot pertain to to the concept of purgatory. So, um, are, are you at least interested to find out? Okay, good. All right. So, hopefully, I won't put you to sleep. Um, when when Jesus paid the price in his body on the cross, that's where he suffered on the cross for our sins. After that, he dies. And there's no more suffering in the sense that there, there's no burning. Uh, he doesn't go to hell and suffer for three days. Some people teach that, but there's nothing in the Bible that says that. It all points to what he did on the cross. That's why we point to the cross. And, and uh, so um, Paul here in verse 24, just, just let me read it again. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. First thing I want to point out, and you want to write this down, as Jesus suffered in this life, Paul is suffering in this life, not the next life. 
So whatever filling up of Christ's afflictions is not taking place in the next life, it's happening in the here and now, right now, in this life. And Paul is suffering. So just by way of reminder from last week, write this down, Paul is writing from prison. Uh, This is a Roman prison. And uh, they were not very uh, plush or posh. It was not a good experience. So he was suffering in that, in that existence. Not in purgatory, not in the next life, but in this life. That's the first thing. Now, in Catholic doctrine, and, and uh, I, I'm, I'm sharing this, this is not to, to bash, but just for understanding's sake. And so if you come from a Catholic background, consider, just consider. Uh, in, but Catholic doctrine holds that, yes, Jesus died on the cross, but now you've got to fill up what's lacking. And so you're going to go through, through that fire. And as you go through the fire, you are then purified. And, and so that's, that's purgatory. However, here, let me just highlight that Paul's not being purified here. Notice what it says. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In the, Underline that. In my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So it's important to, to notice here that Paul, write this down, is suffering for the sake of the church, not his purification. Does everybody see that? He, he's not suffering for his own purification. He's in prison suffering because he brought the gospel there and that's got him arrested. So he's not suffering for his purification. It's on their behalf. Now, um, when we think of that, when we think, so Paul says, so I'm, I'm supplying now what is lacking in, uh, in Christ's afflictions. Jesus took care of our eternity when he died on the cross. However, Jesus told us that in this world, you are going to have, what's the word for the tribulations? We've all heard that, right? Has anybody experienced that, by the way? It's, it's not always easy being a Christian. Have you, it's, it's not easy. So in this life, we have that. But to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, with, with Christ. So in, in this life, the suffering, Paul would describe it like this. There in your outline, 2 Corinthians. And I'm just pulling one verse, I could pull many. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Paul is speaking about this life. And so there are times when we suffer for the sake of the gospel, when we suffer for the sake of the gospel, in a sense, Jesus is suffering with us. A few, few weeks ago, my, my kids had the flu, and we get it in our family. It's just like day one, day two, and then it just kind of passes through. And you see your kids going through that very difficult time. You suffer, you hurt for them. It's hard for us to see our kids go through a difficult time. So we here are sometimes suffering on Christ's behalf. We're suffering for the church. We're suffering as we we get the gospel out. And as we do that, he's also suffering with us. He's not being purified or he's not um, in physical pain. It's just hard to see your kids go through some things. Now, when we think of purification, when the Bible talks about you and I uh, being purified or matured or all of that, it, it always pertains to this life. So notice this verse there. Peter would say it like this. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, and Peter's going to make sure that we understand this is in the flesh, this life, this experience. Suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh, that's this life, has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer 
for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So the idea is that Jesus suffered in this life. Those of us who follow him, there's going to be times when you as a Christian, you find yourself suffering because you're staying faithful to him. But all of the references in the Bible pertaining to the Christian suffering have to do with this life, not the next life. And so when we look at this verse, we would say that this can't pertain to suffering in the next life. It all has to do with this life. Well, uh, hopefully I didn't put you to sleep too badly there. We're going to move on. Verse 25. Did you at least find that interesting? I mean, even if you didn't, say yes. It just, it just helps me. Verse 25. It says, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations but has now been manifested to the saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, and you want to underline, this is the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here is uh, the great mystery that was withheld in the Old Testament in ages past. It would be Christ in us. Our existence as Christians is very different than what they experienced in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when you went to God, you had to take a sacrifice, you had to go to a priest, and the priest had to go to God on your behalf. And, and uh, when Jesus came to the earth and God paid for all the things we'd ever done, not only do we get to go to him, but he has now come to dwell inside of us. It's a very different experience. So Jesus is inside of us. He, it's not that he comes alongside of us to teach us a better way, but he has moved inside of us. This is why, this is why, and this is the test. Because Jesus has stepped inside and dwells within you, if you are a believer and you go off in sin, you are going to be absolutely miserable. I see heads nodding. And here's why. Jesus is inside of you, and he's not leaving. So it creates tension and friction. And so when we go off in sin, it no longer feels right. And, and we all know people, they, they live lives that would be way outside of the bounds of what God would agree, and they feel perfectly fine. Well, Jesus is not inside of them. But if Jesus is inside of you, then all of a sudden when you drift off, it never feels okay. It never feels right. And how many people do we know who, because Jesus is inside of them, they go off, they go far off, and you look at them, they're absolutely miserable, and then they come back, and it's with tears and repentance, I'm just miserable with my life. Have you ever met anybody like that? And it's a wonderful thing to see them come back, but if you're thinking about going out, this is what your experience is going to be if Jesus is inside of you. So the test is when somebody says, I'm a Christian, but they can go lead a life with no remorse, no guilt, no uh, conviction of the Holy Spirit, it means that Jesus has never come inside of them. That's what that means. Make sense? Okay. Uh, verse 28, he says, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Some of your Bibles will say perfect. I like the New, uh, New Century Version. It says this, 
in order to bring everyone into God's presence as a mature person in Christ. Verse 29, for this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. God has, Jesus has moved in, and now his power is being lived out uh, through Paul. So this is why uh, Christmas is such a big deal, because it's about God who came to the earth, God who lived a perfect life, stepped into our place through a very violent death, shedding his blood on the cross, despising the shame, but purchasing us back so that he could say, I do love you. You are forgiven. You are free to go. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. And the reason that we give gifts is because God gave the greatest gift to us. And because we are created in his image, we follow in like fashion. And with that, I'm going to close in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we wrap this up today, uh, my prayer is that we would understand that you are not just a prophet, you are not just a teacher, you are not a vision, but you are literally God in the flesh. And because you are God and because of what you did, we respond by making you first in everything. And in doing that, we reject placing ourselves on the throne of our life, making ourselves God. But as followers of you, we put you first. And I pray, Lord, and we pray that you help us to keep you on the throne. And when you're not, I pray, God, and we pray that you bring us back real quick. Thank you for your incredible grace, and thank you for your incredible salvation. Keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.